This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Tuesday. We are doing GI questions this week. Daphna, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm ready. Okay. This is a good question. I like questions that cross disciplines. Okay. I know. I hate that. <laughs> GI question five. A three-day-old term infant develops abdominal distension. Wait, has... you, skipped, you skipped question four, right? I know. I, we've done, we did question four recently. Ah, oh, that's right. Okay, fine. Sorry. Sorry. My bad. <laughs> um, a three-day-old term infant develops abdominal distension and has not passed meconium. A barium contrast enema study reveals a narrowed segment of the colon with dilated bowel proximal to the involved segment. Which of the following diseases is associated with a small left colon or microcolon? Is it A, maternal diabetes, B, maternal hypothyroidism, C, maternal lupus, D, maternal myasthenia gravis, or is it E, A and B, which is maternal diabetes and maternal hypothyroidism? Dang it. I know. <laughs> but it's a really good question. It's a really good question. I would say uh, maternal diabetes, yes. Um, and now that this option with A and B is there, mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, hmm. Um, And you're wondering, like, if they offered the choice. <laughs> I know. I have a. T I was going to mention something. But... Okay, I'm gonna. You know what? It's low stakes for me. I took the boards already. I'm gonna say NB. Why not? I'm gonna <laughs> add hypothyroidism. It rings a bell. I don't remember yeah. it very well, to be honest. Yeah. No, this is a great question, and I mean, this all the everything on this question is super high yield. So those are the things. These are the maternal diseases you'd really want to focus on. Um. And just because they offer you an A and B question does not mean it's both of the answers. However, in this question, it is both of the answers. So, <laughs> um, microcolon in a newborn can be associated actually with a number of pathologies. Um, the most common association of microcolon is maternal diabetes. Um, and just so we're clear, this was a vignette for microcolon. You might have thought it was something like Hirschprung's, um, but but it's microcolon because of the very long segment uh, of narrow bowel. Um, but the most common association is maternal diabetes. It's also seen in maternal hypothyroidism, so you got that right. Maternal uh, toxemia, so uh, magnesium exposure, um, and prematurity. It can be a rare complication of cecal perforation because that distal bowel just doesn't get used. Um, the pathogenesis of small left colon is postulated to result from a functional immaturity of the ganglion cells, primarily affecting the descending and rectosigmoid colon. This functional obstruction leads to abdominal distension and an inability to pass meconium. A barium contrast enema study will show a small colon segment with the dilated proximal bowel. Okay. I'm setting up a second screen. Just because yeah, I was wondering what you were working on. I'm having a hard time keeping all the windows uh, organized. <laughs> so don't mind me. No. Nope. Um, 
I was going to say, this question was not great in describing a, a micro, uh, a small colon, because it told you there was an area of narrowing. So at first I was like, oh, maybe Hirschsprung. Yeah. But then in the question, they sort of give it up. Mm -hmm. And they tell right. you like, all right, what's the, what's the diagnosis if you have a, 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 a micro colon? Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So the next question we're going to is question uh, six. All right, Daphna. A 12-hour-old, full-term male infant has an episode of biliosemesis. Physical examination is unremarkable, except for biliosemesis. Yeah, this, this is very, this rings so true. You know, you go to the delivery and you're like, <laughs> really? 12 hours old already having, anyway. His upper GI series, you get an upper GI, good for you, is, uh, is similar to the study found at this link. So they give you a link, and if you click, um, what you find is that it looks like um, a contrast mm -hmm. coming down from the esophagus um, and then filling up the stomach. And then you have something coming out of the stomach. You have like a little pocket of contrast and then it suddenly becomes super, super narrow. And it almost looks like it's going down in a corkscrew appearance. appearance. So stomach, there's a little bit of a of an escape of contrast past the, the stomach, but then really it goes down to nothing. There's a massive obstruction, it looks like. The infant undergoes surgery to correct the underlying problem. In case you were gonna recommend surgery, uh uh, too late. It's already <laughs> done. Which of the following though is not part of the procedure Oof. to fix this problem? All right, so your choices, which things you would not do as part of this procedure. Choice A, appendectomy. Choice B, placement of the cecum in the left lower abdominal quadrant. Choice C, placement of the small and large intestines in the anatomically correct positions. Choice D, I'm going slow so that people can keep mm -hmm. up because these are long answers. Mm -hmm. Choice D, rotation of the intestines counterclockwise. And choice E, separation of lads bands. So which one would you not do? I don't know the answer. So, I mean, it's a lads procedure, obviously, for the, like a volvulus. Okay. Um, so you would want to decompress the volvulus. So I guess that's D, uh, rotation of the intestines. Uh, it's called a LADS procedure because you separate the LADS bands. So I guess that's E. If they're going in, they're going to take the appendix. <laughs> that's A. And then I'm stuck with B and C, and I don't actually know the answer. C seems like a reasonable thing to do, to put things back where they're supposed to go. But I'm kind of remembering that not everything goes back where it's supposed to go. But I don't know what goes where. So maybe that's it, the C. 
maybe things don't go back in their anatomically correct position. So methodical. Look at you. Yes, that is correct. Placement of the small and large intestine in the anatomically correct positions is not the right answer. So I tried to help you out a little bit, not you in general, just uh, the audience as well, with the description of the of the contrast study. So the infant in the vignette has a malrotation with midgut mm -hmm. volvulus. Mm -hmm causing the bowel to rotate around the mesentery and kinking off its blood supply. It is the consequence of abnormal fetal intestinal rotation and fixation in the abdomen. So infants may present with bilious emesis alone or with signs of acute peritonitis and bloody stools. Planar radiographs reveal dilated loops uh, with just air, air fluid levels. But when you do the contrast studies, it should show an abnormal course of the duodenum and either a bird's beak, which means you see a complete obstruction and it looks like a bird's beak because it goes mm. from like wide to very narrow. That's or, a great buzzword. Yeah. Or an apple core, which is a partial obstruction configuration. One of the things is that when you have a partial obstruction, there's many people who have described this corkscrew appearance as well, where the contrast just goes in loops like this and it's a, a sign of a volvulus with a partial obstruction. Now, the treatment is done with an emergent surgery. The LADS procedure really is, uh, you, you described it, the correction of a, of a malrotation is done through a LADS procedure, and it's done by reducing the volvulus by turning the bowel in a counterclockwise fashion. You separate the LADS band that uh, connect the intestine to the mesentery, right? So, um, in malrotation, you you have this lads band that 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 is still there that you have to uh, that you have to separate. You can you remove the appendix, you remove the appendix, and then situating the bowel in the abdomen with the cecum in the left lower quadrant and the duodenum in on the right. And this is an important step because it allows for the um, for the avoidance of recurrence. A few more things about malrotation since we're on the subject. I think um, it is commonly associated with uh, congenital diaphragmatic hernia, obviously, with abdominal wall defects, intestinal latresia, and Beckwith-Wiedemann. Good job. I love Beckwith-Wiedemann. All right. <laughs> Settle down. Okay. Um, this, is a, you're, this is a question for you. Okay. Uh, this is question seven. A two-day-old infant born at 26 weeks gestation has a spontaneous intestinal perforation. All of the following are risk factors except. So you're looking for the false answer. Which one is you're really looking for? Which one is not a risk factor for SIP? Um, is it A, initiation of feedings with formula instead of breast milk? Is it B, mechanical ventilation for surfactant deficiency? C, postnatal steroid exposure? D, prior endomethacin to close the PDA, or E, use of vasopressors. Okay, so two-day-old, 26 weeks, you have a SIP. Mm -hmm. You're saying they're all risk factors except one. Mm -hmm. um, oh, that's tricky. So the, um, okay. Um, Postnatal steroid exposure, prior endomethacin to close a PDA, 
use of vasopressors, mechanical ventilation. Okay, all these are choices. The one that's tricky is the first one because it says initiation of feeding with formula instead of breast milk. Does that make a difference What which one it is? Because I know formula, neck, maybe, but sip, I don't remember. Um, mechanical ventilation for surfactant deficiency, prior endomethacin to close a PDA. I mean, we know that there's an association. Oof. Okay. I'm going to go with A, initiation of feeding with formula instead of breast milk. That's yeah. When you first read it, you're like, that's it. It's a slam dunk. <laughs> that's why mm -hmm. it's important to read all of the answers because then it may make you second guess one of the answers. So um, that actually is the correct answer. So it's not associated um, with SIP. Um, delayed feeding uh, is associated with SIP. And other risk factors associated with SIP include the following, exposure to indomethacin, exposure to postnatal steroids, treatment with vasopressors, mechanical ventilation and receipt of surfactant, and maternal choreo and leonitis. A reminder about SIP or spontaneous intestinal perforation. It's a localized intestinal perforation, uh, usually found in small preterm infants. It typically involves the terminal ileum. That's mm -hmm. important to remember. They will ask you the most common locations for all of the GI pathologies. So SIP, most often seen in the terminal ileum, and it occurs earlier in life, most commonly in the first week. Um, as opposed to, say, neck, which tends not to occur in the first week like SIP does. Though it can, as we know. Um, infants may be asymptomatic or present with hypotension and abdominal discoloration. Abdominal radiograph reveals pneumo, uh, pneumoperitoneum, often a very large pneumoperitoneum, um, usually without, I mean, without pneumatosis or portal venous gas. Obviously, those would be signs of necrotizing enterocolitis over SIP. Treatment involves bowel rest, antibiotics, and potentially surgical repair, though most often the perforation will heal without intervention. Thank you. All right, welcome. question eight. Let's do it. A former 29-week gestational, a former 29-weeker, right, with a postmenstrual age now of 36 weeks has persistent postprandial emesis and has been treated twice for aspiration mm -hmm. pneumonia. You're concerned that this baby may have GERD, gastroesophageal reflux, disease, and you'd like to confirm the diagnosis. Mm. Aha. Which of the following diagnose GERD in this infant? Choice A, esophageal endoscopy. Choice B, esophageal manometry. Choice C, impedance monitoring. Choice D, nuclear scintigraphy. Choice E, upper gastrointestinal series. Okay. We've done this question before. We did. <laughs> Last time I asked you this question. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you want something that will help you look for stuff coming back up. <laughs> and some of these options are not available everywhere. So sometimes we use other modes of diagnosing. But what is the most reliable method? Um, endoscopy is kind of 
video manometry is mostly for looking at uh, motility impedance monitoring uh, would be a choice uh, nuclear scintigraphy I'm not sure about an upper G <laughs> sounds scary um, an upper GI series um, could show uh, could show uh, reflux but it's like a one time evaluation so I guess the the thing that would stay in the longest and give you the most information is impedance monitor ching 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 very good so there's a lot of controversy in the diagnosis and treatment of gastroesophageal yeah. reflux disease in the newborn so right most re newborns have GERD they have some form of reflux because they have a lower esophageal sphincter tone. They have a poor lower esophageal sphincter tone. They have prolonged sphincter relaxation. They have poor esophageal motility. And there's a smaller proportion of infants who have symptomatic reflux disease. Uh, most of the time, this is thought to be between around 6 to 7% of term infants, 7 to 10% of preterm infants. And these symptoms include emesis, respiratory problems such as wheezing and aspiration, pain, back arching, and long-term complication can even go as far as oral aversion. One of the things that you should remember is that GERD is not associated with apneas or DSATs. Okay? Don't attribute <laughs> GERD on the test because you got like an apnea and a DSAT, like, oh, he's refluxing. She's refluxing. Okay. The diagnosis of GERD is typically based on clinical signs and symptoms. And esophageal pH monitoring can provide additional information, right? You can measure the frequency and the duration of acid reflux episodes. Uh, this study also helps assess the temporal relationship between acid reflux and clinical symptoms and help determine the adequacy of anti-acidic reflux medication. However, pH probes must be placed in the correct position mm -hmm. for the entire test period. They only measure acid-related reflux. We know that sometimes our neonates don't have a lot of acidity there, so the pH probe sort of is completely oblivious to that reflux. And so most recently, studies have found that non-acidic reflux is a common cause of reflux. And so impedance monitoring, which is a pH-dependent method of measuring reflux by assessing change in resistance to electrical current flow between sensors located throughout the esophagus. One of the sensors is distal to the pH sensor that uh, categorizes the episode as acidic or non-acidic. And then this test can be done in the presence of reflux. Uh, the time that the liquid is in the esophagus and how long it takes for the bolus to be cleared from the esophagus, the impedance monitoring is the most reliable method currently used to diagnose GERD in an infant. And you may not have impedance monitoring available in your institution, mm. but just remember it. This is so high yield. You want to diagnose GERD in a neonate? Impedance monitoring. And I just want to make one correction. Please? <laughs> As you were reading, you said pH-dependent pH method. And the reason impedance Sorry. monitoring is Sorry. pH. Yeah, it measures pH. It can measure pH. Of course. But it course. measures boluses that are non-acidic also. Oh, that's where Thank you for clarifying that. pH independent. Cause, yeah, because we just said that the pH yeah. might not be the best. Thank you. Right. Of course. pH independent method of measuring reflux. Perfect. Now, of the other choices, we have endoscopy, which can help you visualize the esophagus and allow for uh, biopsy of the esophageal epithelium. Um, and you can find like eosinophilic, eosinophilic mm -hmm. esophagitis or allergic esophagitis, uh, but it's very invasive and it's not really a first-line method. You have manometry, which is technically difficult to perform, 
does not really provide information about reflux itself, only like the, the tone and the function of the sphincter. And then when it comes to nuclear scintigraphy, um, it's really unclear. Nuclear scans can detect non-acid uh, and acidic reflux, but uh, they can evaluate also gastric emptying, they demonstrate aspiration, but the technique is not standardized. There's no specific age-specific normative data, so it's complicated. And then an upper GI study um, can really uh, show you uh, reflux, but what's physiologic, what's not physiologic, you won't know. So not helpful. Okay. Mm -hmm. Questions about that? Nope. All right. I'll see you tomorrow then. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphne and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.